Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sailing the East podcast. I'm Bela Musitz. This is our podcast about sailing and cruising the East Coast of the United States. In this episode, I am interviewing Simon and Sawyer Ballant. They are a father and son team that spent last summer cruising the coast of Maine. Sailing is relatively new to them, and this was their first extended cruise. They visited many interesting ports in Maine, and had other members of the family join them as well. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks, Bella. Yeah, sure. So, um, how long have you guys been sailing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I can start because maybe I started a little earlier. Um, you know, growing up, we had a little place on Lake Champlain and we had a sunfish. And I have vivid memories of my father and I going out there when I was maybe eight years old and uh, there was no wind and then my father lost the paddle. So it was a very long uh, sort of hand paddle to get back to the shore. Um, but that was essentially the full extent of our sailing experience uh, until quite recently. Um, about five years ago, I joined the collegiate sailing team at my undergraduate school. And I really just walked on with essentially no experience and that's how I learned how to sail. Um, I think through that, you know, in the couple of years after I started, uh, Simon and I would go out in the 420 and sort of learn the basics there. Um, but yeah, I would say it's all been the past couple of years. And uh, really until just recently, it's been on smaller boats. Yeah. So, so, and how about you, Simon, other than sailing around up in Willsboro Bay on Lake Champlain and sailing? Yeah, that's, that's just, yeah. I mean, yeah, we had a lake house. So as a kid, you know, from a toddler on, I was always in the water. So I'm certainly comfortable around water and I've had motorboats and, you know, ding, like the old sunfish. Um, but no real, yeah. you know, no sailing experience, no, no real sail, sailor training until, um, you know, sort of started getting into dinghy sailing. And then we had this idea of buying a... Uh, a blue water boat. And that was uh, about three years ago. Yeah. So what was the genesis of that idea of buying a, a larger boat? I can tell you my, my idea. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <I wanna hear. laughs> we get each of your versions here. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in general, I, you know, I love boats. I love the water. It's just, you know, a lot, a lot of people do. So you dream about boats. You look at, I used to get wooden boat magazine as, you know, as a teenager and stuff like that. Um, you know, for me, uh, as a father, I have always tried to, you know, keep it interesting with, with my kids. And when they're little, it's pretty easy, right? You can tell them a story or they get a little older, you can go on a hike and it, you know, it gets a little more challenging, um, to, to keep up on that. So as, uh, my son in particular was getting into, you know, dinghy sailing and really enjoying his college sailing experience, I thought this might be a great way to 
keep us doing something in common that we could share as we got to that next, you know, stage of sort of father-son relationship. So that was, that's where I was coming from. I don't know if Sawyer realized that, but that's what I was yeah. trying to do. Yeah, excellent. How about you, Sawyer? Well, I don't know. So, you know, I, I do have memories as a, a younger kid, always being into the idea of living on a boat. Um, you know, my parents will laugh about this all the time, even today. How I used to have these books of boat designs. And I would go through the designs and every day I'd have a new favorite boat. Um, and most of the times there were wooden boats and I had this sort of dream in my head uh, as like a 12 year old of building my own boat and living, you know, rent free and tax free and um, all that great stuff. And then, I, you know, I kind of grew out of that in high school. Um, you know, my life got busy in other ways and I stopped kind of thinking about being on a boat. Um, but then, you know, getting back into sailing at, at college uh, kind of revitalized that interest. And um, yeah, I remember, you know, my father, you know, came up with the idea or at least brought that to my attention uh, the summer before my sophomore year. And yeah, I mean, it seemed like a really cool idea. And, you know, I don't know if I was thinking about it quite as much as Simon was, but yeah, the idea to do something, you know, with my father, with my family, um, another way to stay on the water, it really was very appealing to me. Yeah. You know, so a lot of people sort of dream about buying a big boat and sailing off wherever, right? Sailing around the world or just sailing around, you know, the port they're at. A lot of people dream about it, but a lot fewer sort of take that first step, take that action, right? Do the actionable thing. So what was the forcing function that said, okay, we're actually going to do this? <laughs> well, um, Bill, you and I spoke in, a, in, in your other podcast about entrepreneurship. Yeah. And I guess I would say me personally, sort of my, I don't think I have a, a conscious plan about it, but if I look back on, on the things I've done in my life, I've often sort of had this idea pop into my head and it, you know, it percolates a little bit, but then I kind of force myself to take the next step in some sort of way that I have to move forward. Um, so yeah, this, we had this idea of a boat, uh, buying a boat, and then we did come up with kind of a, a stage plan as to how we would do that. In fact, I, I had talked to you because you're the only person I knew that had. Yep. We just lost our connection or something here, guys. Cause you're frozen. And like real sailing experience. So I have audio, but not that. Okay. Video. So oh, hang no, on. You're back. Uh, we're, we're, we're back. Uh, so I think the last thing you said, Simon, before we, we lost the connection here, was that um, you, you had a plan and you actually talked to me because I was the only person you knew who had some sailing experience. Yeah, so I talked to you. Um, it was actually an event, if you remember, in, in Schenectady that you were hosting. And uh, yeah, you gave me some good advice, like, you know, go, go take some sailing classes. Uh, you know, some of the offshore classes and maybe go charter a boat um, and, you know, step by step by step. So we kind of made that sort of plan. So and I actually, our, our plan was um, go to a boat show um, to kind of look around, uh, take some classes, um, be a crew on a charter, then get certified to do our own charter and then buy a boat. And uh, we went to a boat show. <laughs> we met a broker 
and uh, we started boat shopping. We bought a boat like two months later. Yeah, so, we, we kind of skipped steps we, three we, and four there. We skipped, steps, yeah. skipped all the preliminaries. And, uh, yeah, and but you know, and and I, again, I mentioned this last time. We we bought the boat that we thought was right for us uh, after looking at a few, but we did, and it was kind of an advantage. We bought a boat in Florida uh, because then we were forced to sail at home. Oh, I see. And that was actually going to make us learn a lot. So, you know, one, one, uh, I shouldn't say a fear, but I've seen other people do it. Is you buy a boat, you know, it's really exciting, the whole buying process, and then it sits in the dock and you never, you know, never have time to go actually sail it. And maybe you gradually get some experience, but it takes you 10 years to get 100 hours on the water. You know, we had, we had to get from, from Florida back home, which meant we had to travel 2,000 miles one way or the other. And, you know, with your help and, and, and uh, some time, we, we, we figured it out. And therefore, when we got to Providence, you know, we had 1,000 miles under our belt. And we had learned actually quite a, quite a lot. Right, right. Yeah, but and you forced yourself, like you were saying earlier, once you take that step, you buy the boat in Florida, you got to take the next step, which is get it home, unless you're going to pay someone to do that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do that? I have a little trick too, is uh, I'll tell someone what my plan is because then I can't back down because I've already put it out there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, tell the audience what boat you ended up buying and and sort of what your process and thinking was uh, about that particular vessel. Sure. So we ended up in the end buying a Passport 40. Um. And, you know, when we first started the process, one of the kind of debates we were thinking in our head was, you know, with the budget that we had, do we buy a newer, say, five to 10-year-old uh, boat that is more of a production-style boat, or do we buy a 20 or 30-year-old boat that's more of a custom uh, or semi-custom blue water type sailing vessel? And, uh, yeah, going into the, the buying process, you know, we had, there were a few different designs we were thinking of. And we went to the Newport Boat Show um, and got to see a little more of the, the, the range of options. And I think it became pretty apparent to us quite quickly uh, that we would rather go for the older, um, but perhaps higher quality option. Um, and you know, I think the reason for that, in part, is due to our background off the water. Um, you know, we've been involved in construction and building maintenance and tackling projects. For a very long time and so the the thought of having a fixer upper kind of boat um really wasn't that scary to us yeah yeah we, when we buy six buildings we're looking at the you know the fundamentals of the structure and we want something really sound and we can we can fix the cosmetic stuff and add you know toys to it right um so that yeah that was our approach and you know we also had this idea too which once we kind of skipped right ahead to buying a boat our next plan we we're starting to skip ahead to is like we want to sail across the Atlantic or sail around the world. So a blue water boat made sense, you know, for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, you've had the boat now for three years, yeah. I think. And and what year is the boat again? It's 1989. So it's a 1989. So it's, it's older, but it's not that old. Mm -hmm. uh, have there been any surprises that you sort of, you know, that didn't show up on survey or that you didn't expect or, you know, part of the challenges of owning an older boat? Hmm. No, I can't really think of any. I mean, we, the, there were the things that you hear about in the boating community when we were looking at buying the boat. So in this, you know, so every, as you know, probably, uh, every boat sort of has its list of three or four things that, 
you may want to look out for it based on when it was built or how it was built. And in the passport 40s and maybe other boats are like this, blistering can be a problem. So we looked for that in our survey and we did actually find pretty significant blistering, um, but that was negotiated in the sale and we, you know, we had a plan to get that, get that fixed. Um, no, I think, uh, you know, the boat's been, been really a, a gem. Uh, we've definitely added a lot to it. Uh, I would say, not really surprised, but, um, you know, to add all the things we wanted for our uh, kind of cruising plan, uh, it's, it's been a fair amount of money. We've, we've probably put, you know, twenty or $30,000 into the boat. We didn't have to. It's not like, you know, we were stuck, but once you start going you're, you, and you, you try to do some downwind sailing, you realize, wow, a whisker pole would be really great. And you start researching whisker poles and you realize, yeah, like a mass mounted track whisker pole is the way to do it. And then before you know it, you know, that's, that's $4,000, but it's fine. It's, you know, it's part of the fun for us. And I don't know, you spend your money on something. So we, we enjoy spending it on the boat, kind of like you would on your house. Yeah. And so I, I sort of recall that, uh, Sawyer graduated from university a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. I think. And you guys, the plan was to sail across the Atlantic from United States to someplace over in the continent was uh, yes that summer and and then something called covid sort of happened so so talk a little bit about sort of you know that's like an unexpected thing it's like oh crap we we've been building up to do this great thing together and now all of a sudden we can't so talk about sort of how you dealt with that and sort of you know the 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 things that you learned from that process Sure. Um, well, you know, for, for me, that that early part of 2020 was turbulent in a few ways, because not only was it the cancellation of this trip across the Atlantic, you know, it was also the cancellation of the final sailing season for me, my senior year. And, you know, we were slated to go to nationals. We were ranked number one in the country. So um, kind of there were a lot of elements that we were thinking of. But I think, you know, very early on, we started thinking about what the other possibilities would be. Um, you know, one of the, the limitations was, of course, there were, there were a few factors. One factor was we wanted to remain close enough to home that we could get home by driving if we had to. Um, so if there was some sort of family emergency, we wouldn't be forced to take an airplane. Um, so that, you know, kind of helps constrain our geographic area. Uh, the the closing of the international border between the US and Canada and the US and Europe also kind of offered a constraint. So, you know, we had a few different options available to us. Uh, I spent hours planning routes up and down the coast, up into Canada, Nova Scotia, you know, down all the way to Florida and the Caribbean, um, just to kind of have a suite of options. And then by the time June came, uh, we could make an informed decision about what we wanted to do that summer. And it was pretty apparent that cruising the coast of Maine uh, would be a really compelling option because, you know, it's only a few hours from where we live in uh, upstate New York, uh, but in it's a, in a car. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a really compelling area to sail on a sailboat. Yeah. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about that trip. Uh, where, where did you depart from? So the boat at the time was in Rhode Island. So okay. we, we left Rhode Island and then we went, east uh up buzzers bay through the cape cod canal and then north up into uh up into maine 
and yeah. and so talk about the crew sort of how you did it and a few let's peel that onion back a little bit more a few more details so you left narragansett bay and where'd you go yeah. to who was on the boat etc yeah so it was just sawyer and myself um sawyer's the captain as i have to say i'm the <laughs> I'm the, I don't know, the purser. You just own, <laughs> you just own the boat, <laughs> right? The purser, right? <laughs> so, um, but it's true, actually. Sorry, knows a lot more and he's, you know, he's, he's younger and he picks things up more quickly than I do. So, um, but yeah, we're, so uh, just the two of us and um, we've done some overnights before. We've done some, uh, some, some decent cruising, just the two of us. And we, you know, we also work together. Uh, we work together in, in reconstruction. So we, we, we have a dynamic that works pretty well. We don't need to always talk a lot. We kind of know what each other is about to do. So just the two of us for crew, yeah, we left. Uh, and our plan to get to Maine was to try to get there quickly and then enjoy the month in Maine. So uh, it's basically, a, it's, it's a one overnight. I think the total trip was maybe 40 hours to, to leave or 50 hours, uh, you know, to leave from uh, Narragansett Bay, up Buzzers Bay through the Cape Cod Canal, try to get through that before sun uh, down, and then you go overnight um, up the uh, whatever that is, the Gulf of Maine or something, and then you you know you arrive in Portland sometime the next day. Got it. And uh, yeah, so their idea was to, you know just to hump it out there, and then uh, Sawyer of course had all sorts of itineraries and routes and places we should see. Um, and we could sort of take our time because there's a lot of interesting things in Maine you know, three miles up the coast or five miles up the coast, you don't have to go very far to get to something really, you know, really interesting. Yeah. So we basically, you know, hopped along the coast, uh, you know, for a month. And we actually, yeah, we, we spent, what, 30, 32 days at mm -hmm. anchor, um, which was not a cruise across the Atlantic, uh, but it was, you know, definitely kind of being self-sufficient and living on a boat as if we were, you know, cruising long distance. Yeah. And you had other family members join you during part of that trip as well? Yeah, we did, um, which is great. We were able to connect with a few people. So my mom and sister came out uh, for about a week, which was really nice. You know, again, because it's it's not that far driving-wise, we were able to pick them up um, in Maine and then cruise around and then um, drop them off right back at the end of the week. Um, that was good. I also have some friends from college who live up in Maine, so I was able to connect with them as well. Oh, that's nice. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah we got to... So, sorry, as a friend who lives on a little island in Maine, so, you know, we pulled up outside the island, dropped the anchor, uh, took our dinghy to shore, and then, you know, went to their house for, for dinner. So, I mean, for those who haven't done Maine or are thinking about it and who live sort of on the East Coast or Northeast, it, that is one really interesting thing about Maine. And what's really nice is you could sail it for an extended period of time with your crew or maybe one member of your family. And if you have other folks, friends or family who might just want to come for a weekend or something, you know, it's a four or five hour drive from, you know, upstate New York or from New York City. Not really hard for a person to do who wants to just maybe spend a weekend with you, um, you know, not the whole month. Right, so, right. That was, yeah. really, that was really great. Yes, that's one of the great things, you know, in this podcast, we sort of talk about sailing the East. And, and one of the nice benefits of, of sailing the East Coast is there are lots of places typically up and down the whole coast where you can stop and pick people up, drop people off, et cetera. Um, you know, the West Coast is is much more problematic when it comes to those types of things. Absolutely. And even, you know, even if you get down to the you know, sort of southeastern part of the United States, and that's why it was never developed like the Northeast was there, the kind of inlets and harbors and cities are much further and farther in, you know, in between. Yeah. So in Maine, every 
you know, every three miles is a little cove, a little town. And if you're in a car, you can always drive there. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the places you went to? Can you, can you recall some of them? Oh man, uh, there's lots of list. Um, you, you know, so we started in, in Portland and essentially moved all the way west or east, sorry, to Bar Harbor and then came back. So along that route, um, I'm going to miss a lot of them, but you know, Portland, uh, Port Clyde, Camden, Maine was beautiful. Rockland, um, Stonington was another really cool. Yeah, town. Stonington was cool. Um, yeah, let's pick one that's really interesting. I think um, uh, Monhegan Island is mm -hmm. an absolute gem, and uh, that's something that we discovered kind of by accident. I think maybe sort of read about it, but we stopped there both on our way up and, and on our way back. So. Um, Monhegan Island is what about halfway up the main coast mm -hmm. uh, it's about 10 miles offshore it's a tiny little island but it's got a little settlement on it that's probably an old you know fishing settlement uh, and it uh, it's becoming like an arts colony so in the summer at least non-COVID times you know there's a decent community of retired folks who do watercolors on the beach um, that actually helps uh, town going. So even though it's there are only 30 or 40 residents there, um, it has a brewery, it has a coffee shop, it has all the little things that only can exist because you know money flows in. Uh, but it's not touristy. It's not like going to you know Provincetown or you know something like that. It's uh, it's 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 very authentic. There's still lobstermen there. It's absolutely gorgeous. And when you pull in um, and you look at the the fish houses they call them that are on the on the water i don't think that literally they have not changed in 140 years they're the same you know little huts that have been there since the late 19th century yeah so yeah so it sounds like there's just uh, lots and lots of places uh, to explore and, and visit little towns little communities uh, all along the coast of maine so what were some of the cruising challenges uh, in the coast of maine Right. This was your kind of first trip up into the, the northern uh, part of the country. So what were some of the challenges? Well, I guess one thing that maybe was new to us. Um, well, I'll say that there, there are two things. First one is the fog, which is what most people oh, complain yeah. about when they talk about Maine. Um, in our case, we actually, the fog wasn't as problematic as it might be for other people because we have a reliable radar and we have um, an AIS transponder. So, you know, most of the lobster boats don't have AIS, but we can see them on radar. And then with the commercial vessels, um, you know, we can see them and communicate to them digitally. Um, so I thought the fog was kind of cool, but I can imagine for people who don't have that technology and aren't as comfortable in the fog, that would be a real hindrance because most mornings, you know, you couldn't see the bow of your boat. Absolutely, um, yeah. We certainly... And we got some video of that, you know, cruising, Sawyer in the front, I sort of look out, I'm at the helm, and yeah, I don't think we can see 20 feet. Wow. For real. You know, but there is, but it's quiet, you know, with the fog. And then, you know, we, we would try to keep the engine off if we could and sail. That's one of the things that they, you know, they, they tell you to do. And you could hear the lobster boats, you know, they could hear their, their diesel engine as they were kind of picking up uh, the crab pots. Uh, you couldn't see them until they were literally 20 feet away, but they knew where you were. I mean, they're pretty experienced. And uh, yeah, that was something different. That was, yeah. that was kind of fun. The, uh, a lot of lobster pots as well. Yeah, that's something too. That we, I think we, we learned and we got used to over time. Um, 
So when we first left from Florida and we were going up the coast. I remember like if we saw a, a like a crab buoy or a fish buoy or something, it might be half a mile away. And we'd have a guy on the bow pointing at it like, you know, lobster pot to a glove. And then we'd like veered violently. You know, by the end, I don't know, we maybe shouldn't say this. Some people made it going to get mad. But we had this sort of game where we would try to hit the lobster buoy with our dinghy that we were towing behind. If we could do that, we would get points. <laughs> but basically, we were getting very, very close to the lobster buoys. And, you know, uh, they, they can be dangerous. You don't want to get entangled. But... Um, we had a we have a prop cutter on our on our on our boat, which we installed. That was really useful. And you kind of I don't know as you get more experience, your sense of space changes. And we you know we learned when it was dangerous and when it was not. And being a couple feet away from a pot, as yeah. long as looking at the wind was was fine. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would say is anchoring is a challenge mm-hmm. uh, because of that. So in many of the places in Maine, uh, it, the 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 bottom's quite rocky. So it's not like just mud in the Chesapeake, you know, you got to kind of find a good spot. Uh, and it's kind of hard to find like 50 feet of swing room without a lobster pot. <laughs> so you, you don't, you certainly don't want to swing around, get yourself all tangled up and then have to sort of figure that out in the morning. So it took us sometimes, you know, three or four attempts to get to that right spot with an anchor. That's, got it. that's one. Got it. And the other challenge I'll say about Maine too, in terms of anchoring, is the tides in Maine are quite oh, yeah, high. Yeah. It's a it's a high range, and the anchorages tend to be deeper than they are in, in other parts of the East Coast. And what that means practically is you have to put out a lot of chain. Um, so you do have a you have to think about your swing room because it's going to change a lot and it's going to be very large. Um, it's not like in the Chesapeake where it's you know eight feet at low tide and ten feet at high tide, and you can get away with forty feet of chain. You might be putting out one hundred twenty feet. Um, and at low tide, that's a big radius. We had that. Remember that? Um, what's that little place next to Kennebunk? Uh, that we, it's like a cove that mm-hmm. we, anyway, we, we found this little cove. We anchored in there. It was sort of in the afternoon. Uh, and you can take, you, you can take a dinghy kind of through this little channels to get to the town. So we, we did that. It was, it was cool. We walked around the town and then we were thinking, yeah, you know, we didn't check the tides. I wonder if everything's all right. So we looked at our app and we realized that, yeah, there's like a seven foot tide and, and it anchored at high tide and the tide was dropping fast. So we ran to our dinghy. We tried going back the way we came and, you know, it was just a sandbar now. So we couldn't get back to the boat without going out into the open water and kind of coming around the point. This is in our eight foot little, you know, homemade dinghy. Uh, so that was a little hairy. <laughs> and by the time we got back to the boat, it was uh, nightfall. And uh, when we got on the boat, we have a like a five and a half foot draft. And, you know, so we had about six feet under the boat and the tide was still going down. So we had to pull the anchor, try to find another spot. That was, uh, you know, a good lesson, like check the tides before you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's six feet and it's rocky. It's not sandy. No, exactly. <laughs> it's not like Chesapeake mud where you just plow through it to get to the harbor. This right. Is, you don't hit the bottom. Right. Right. Very good. So, uh, and then on your return trip, uh, did you drop the family off in Portland and the two of you uh, make another nonstop trip back from Portland or how'd you guys do that? I'm trying to remember, I think we had a, a couple of stops. Um, we were going to do that and we decided and said, yeah, to kind of see some places in Massachusetts and then go over to um, Cape Cod. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up um, kind of cutting straight down and came into Provincetown. That was 
We, we made fun stuff, I think, on the way. Yeah, well, something in uh, like near Gloucester, yeah. Massachusetts. And then we, yeah, we cut across that Cape Cod Bay or you know whatever it's called. Um, that was super awesome because we were cruising along and uh, we saw you know a, a whale blow and we're like you know what's that and by the time we realized what it was there was a humpback whale sitting in front of us you know 20 feet in front of us wow just yeah uh so we got to sort of just stop and, and watch him or her do what it was doing so that was like a whale watching you know free whale watching yeah really cool. you know it's it, it it's remarkable i've spent a fair amount of time on on the water mostly fresh water and and you know swimming and snorkeling and you could you can snorkel for five, six hours in freshwater and not see a fish, <laughs> but you go yeah. in, you go into the, the ocean or salt water. It's just abundant with life. It's just remarkable how, you know, so if you like that kind of stuff, the ocean is like a gold mine. I mean, it's, I mean, some of it's nasty stuff like jellyfish and things like that, but still it's just remarkable. The amount of sea life that you'll see. Yeah. That was, that was, that was really shocking to us too. Yeah. Same thing. Like we grew up on, you know, uh, lakes up in New York and Lake Champlain. Maybe 200 years ago, there was more life. You know, these days, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these high altitude lakes, not a lot of life. At least don't you know see it. Um, and you're right. Yeah, you're out in the ocean. Certainly, dolphins and you know, and whales. We've seen sharks jump out of the water. You know, uh, like Shark Week kind of thing. Uh, actually, coming across the Cape Cod Canal once, we we saw a fin um, in the distance and we thought maybe it was like one of those sunfish you know those giant sunfish that float on top so we sort of turned around to come you know check it out uh we stopped the boat it was maybe 50 100 feet away from us and it started swimming towards us and you know we were both standing on deck check out this sunfish and got about 10 feet away and suddenly you can make it out in the water and it was a great white shark uh, that we know was 20 feet long because it turned alongside the boat and was half the length of the boat. Wow. And, you know, even though whales are bigger, I was, I've never been so impressed by, you know, a piece of wildlife as that. It was just an absolute beast. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, no, you get to see a lot of stuff. And I think that's a lot of part of the fun of sailing. So sailing is, I tell people too, that don't know about it. It's, uh, you know, it's a certain part um, sport. It's a certain part kind of travel. It's a little bit of camping. Uh, it's a bit of like, you know, wildlife, you know, nature appreciation too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the plans uh, for this summer? Well, we don't have anything, you know, set in stone. Um, so I have a, a job now in oh, Rhode Island. Job. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't part of the plan. Yeah. <laughs> no, COVID wasn't either. Yeah. Um, so right, right now, the, so we, we brought last uh, fall, we, we brought the boat down to North Carolina uh, so we did a couple of sort of winter cruises to get down there and we're in the process of bringing it back up. We, we did a week to bring it from North Carolina back to Annapolis. We got a little bit of, uh, work to do there. And then another two weeks time, we're going to go from, we, now it's just me go from, uh, cause he's working. I'm going to go from Annapolis, uh, back to Narragansett. So that's where we'll keep the boat. And, uh, yeah, I think we'll do, a, you know, some long weekends, we'll probably do a week or so, you know, to... nice thing about the East, you know, the, that, that part of the, the world and we may talk about it more later um is you know you've got places like martha's vineyard and nantucket and cape cod they're, they're nearby and unlike when you have to drive six hours to get to the you know end of cape cod when you arrive at these places by boat it's really enjoyable 
you know, you, you don't have the tourist crowds, you, you're kind of doing your own thing. You're not paying 500 bucks a night for some little ho you know, hotel room. So there's a lot of nice spots kind of in that part of the world that, uh, that we, we could cruise, you know, for, for a long time. Yeah, it is a, it is a very nice cruising ground. Very nice. So, uh, a couple more questions and then we'll wrap this up. So uh, reflecting back on, on uh, several years now, you've owned the boat and you're cruising. What sort of uh, words of advice uh, or lessons learned that you want, would want to share with our listeners? I got one. Sorry. All right, go for it. Uh, so what you mentioned before, you know, we talked about we bought this boat and we didn't know what we were doing and that's all kind of true. But we, you know, we're not cavalier. So we did find somebody that knew a bit about sailing to come with us. Uh, so in that first couple trips we made from Florida up, um, it was Sawyer and myself and, you know, a guy who'd been sailing for 20, 30 years. And <laughs> we, uh, you know, we learned, we learned a ton from that. You, you learn by doing, but you also learn, you know, by having someone with you. Right. Uh, so I really recommend that if you're getting, you know, into sailing, even or maybe you've done it a little bit in the past, um, you know, try to find someone to come along and, you know, usually you get a boat and you're willing to pay for the food, people are willing to, you know, to hop on. Right, right. And who was that guy that uh, you dragged along? Uh, he's this famous, like, uh, you know, podcast celebrity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bela Musitz, yeah. He's got to start the ropes. Yeah. But actually what's funny, Bela, is I'll tell you this. So you're, in my mind, right, you're this super salty, experienced sailing guy and you've done all these trips, whatever. And I think like it was the first night like we decided to do like an offshore. Yeah. And we are like, oh, great. I've never done an offshore before. Like, oh my. <laughs> like wait a minute, Bailey. I thought you're, you're the expert. Right. So I think you, you know, you're, you're able to learn a little bit too. Even oh, absolutely. A ton, a ton of sailing. Uh, we, we did some new things that, you know, we both learned from. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, uh, that was one of the highlights. And I remember that trip uh, for the rest of my life. I thought it was, it was great because I learned a ton and, uh, I thought it was, uh, it was fabulous. I still remember, you know, bringing the boat out when you picked it up from the owner and, yeah. and, and out, coming out the canal system there. And it was like trying to drive in Boston through all the traffic circles. I mean, it was unbelievably busy. And then there was the heli police helicopter flying around and the police boats because they were chasing some criminal along all these mansions that lined the canal. Absolute chaos. And yeah, yeah, remember that was my first experience on a boat. So I basically assumed that's what sailing was like, <laughs> like police helicopters and, you know, right. $500 million mega yachts and, uh, you know, just absolute, you know, like you said, driving through Newark or, or Boston. Yeah. And no, most of sailing is not like that. Actually. In yeah. fact, once we got out of there, I was surprised. So maybe this is something else for the lesson. Um, I'm actually surprised how quiet the water is. Uh, you know, we sailed up and down the East Coast a lot, a couple times now. Um, you know, there's 100 million people on the East Coast. The East Coast has a 400-year sailing history. If any part of the country, we're kind of the sailing part of the country. You know, even in the summer, going up Buzzards Bay, maybe you see four or five boats. Right. It's, it's right. quiet. And you go offshore a little bit, you see nobody. Nothing. Which is nice, but also, yeah, you got to make sure that you're pretty self-sufficient because yeah. there's not a lot. Yeah. 
Okay, so one word of advice is uh, if you have inexperience, uh, bring someone with you who is more experienced. Now, you, the two of you guys have tons of experience, probably uh, as much if not more than the average uh, coastal cruiser. Uh, what other kind of lessons learned uh, or advice would you have? You know, so I came into this with a little more of a, a collegiate dinghy racing background. Um, so, you know, I thought I knew a lot, um, you know, since I was sailing three, four hours a day all through college. Um, and, you know, I guess that the fundamentals are, are similar, but the truth is, uh, you know, when you're cruising and you're doing offshore sailing, it's a very different priority list. And I think it took me a little while to fully appreciate that. That, you know, you have to, to think of a, a variety of different factors and your priorities are just really different. Um, it's not necessarily getting from point A to point B in the fastest amount of time um, or the shortest possible distance. Um, or, you know, you want to be comfortable and you want to be safe and, um, you know, want to be thinking about the weather and, you know, what you're comfortable with and what matches your level of experience. Um, I think it took me a couple of trips to really appreciate that. You know, the second element, and, and this is something that I've learned a lot uh, over the past two years, is just all the maintenance we've done on the boat. Um, I think over the past three years, even though this was marketed as a relatively turnkey vessel, for a boat of its age, um, we've done maintenance on almost every system on the boat, um, and we've done it all ourselves. And that's also been an incredible learning experience because it's taught me so much about how to wire solar panels to the battery, how to install um, a VHF radio, how to do maintenance on the engine, um, you know, the the windlass, the sails, the pressure water system. Um, you know, I think the nice thing about Simon and I with our background is we're, we're not afraid to tackle a project and try it ourselves. And so that's, on the one hand, it's been a lot of hours, but on the other hand, it's, it's been a real opportunity to, to learn a lot of new skills. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah, we think we enjoy that, but that would be maybe a lesson for folks that are thinking about, you know, buying a boat. Uh, unless you just have, a, you know, an endless bank account uh, and don't mind spending a ton of money, I think you need to be prepared to you know, to roll up your sleeves and, and do some work. Uh, even again, this boat was uh, probably the best of its kind in its class uh, and uh, was very well maintained, but we have to fix stuff all the time. Right. It's just part of running a boat. Right. Um, yeah. So you know, I, I was just going to make a comment that I've watched enough YouTube channels and listened to other sailing podcasts. Even people who buy a brand new boat, Right, right out of the factory are still doing lots and lots of maintenance and et cetera. And, and it, it's interesting in that, I mean, I can remember being a kid growing up that, you know, in the 60s, automobiles were not very reliable. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it took a lot of kind of, you were always tinkering with your car to kind of keep it running. But nowadays you can buy a car, you can get it, you can basically drive it for other than change the oil and put new tires on it for 10 years and not do anything but boats haven't really progressed, <laughs> right? Boats are still like cars were in the sixties. They're like still stuck in that sort of, gosh, you're, you're constantly, you know, checking this or doing that and, and stuff breaks. It's not super reliable. Um, so it's an interesting, interesting sort of industry from that perspective. So that's good advice. Another, if we have time, another thing I would say from a cruising standpoint, um, there's so many fantastic, uh, you know, apps and uh, pieces of software that are relatively, you know, cheap or free. 
that you can use that's kind of amazing. So you, you know, you can look at offshore uh, wind forecasts that probably only the most elite sailors in the world had access to five years ago, and now you know anyone can download it. Um, things like Active Captain, or uh, you know, community of sort of boaters is very useful for getting information. Um, on the other hand, I will say that you need to be careful uh, about the information you you get, and sort of like anything, you know, look at multiple sources. Uh, use your own common sense. Uh, you know, active. I think Active Captain is a great resource, but it is social media, and you know, sorry, and I will laugh. Invariably, there's some write-up about some place, and it's hyperbole. People are like, oh, don't come in here at night. It's a seven-knot current. You know, and they're like, really? That's a lot of current. You know, and sorry, will like pull up the you know, NOAA 20-year study that shows the maximum current ever recorded in 15-minute increments was 1.8. Right. No, not so, <laughs> you know you gotta you gotta look at different things and and uh but you know there's lots of information and we'll tend we'll tend to to do that we'll tend to really kind of analyze our next trip or our next anchorage uh kind of like we'd be you know sussing out any kind of problem yeah and then approach it that way yeah so. well it it's also interesting that things like tides they're pretty yeah. predictable and they don't get them wrong very much. And if they're wrong, you know, it's maybe an inch or two, but it's not three feet wrong. Yeah. Uh, however, winds on the other hand, right. We, we all see, we, we use all these apps, whether predict wind or something like that. It's a model. It's, yes. it's a mathematical model yeah. predicting what's going to happen in the future. It's you, not reality. Yeah. <laughs> and so my point being is you can get lulled yeah. into thinking, Oh, it, predict when just said it's going to be 10 knots out there today and all of it, and you're not really prepared for it. And then all of a sudden it's 20 or 25 knots Absolutely. and, and, and that happens all the time. Right. And, and plus there's these local phenomenons that happen, you know, within a bigger weather uh, geography, there's these micro little weather things that happen. Um, you got to look around. And another thing is, um, I think we've learned this too over time is we used to get very focused on the wind like exclusively focused on the wind uh, because we, I mean, wind's important when you're sailing. And also we had read all these, you know, horror stories of this massive gust and, you know, the boat broaches. And so we're always focused on wind. Well, that's part of it, but you know, uh, there's two other factors. One is like really crappy thunderstorm uh, can change things. Uh, that's not in that wind forecast. You got to look at actual other weather forecasts. And in terms of comfort and actual safety and, and feeling of, uh, Feeling of safety, I think seas are more important. Yeah. When we sailed in 30 knots uh, with a nice following sea or a fairly calm sea, it's, you know, you're sitting in the cockpit looking out the back, like, you know, you're watching the movies. It's 12 foot waves, but they're behind you. It's no problem. Uh, we sailed into four or five foot chop. Uh, you feel like the boat's going to go down. You know, the water's splashing over the bow. Right. You're getting seasick. Right. So um, I think we, we look at seas a lot more now than we do. You know, then we do win. And we didn't realize that for like the first year. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, I remember when we were bringing the boat up from Florida <clears throat> and uh, we were looking at wind a lot. And, and that one, one of the nights we got a pretty good batch of thunderstorms. And I remember calling my wife the next morning and saying, yeah, we got into these bad thunderstorms and stuff. And uh, she said, well, didn't you watch the weather forecast? <laughs> and it was like, no, we didn't. We just, I mean, we have all these other, you know, tide tables and currents and, 
and wind models, but we didn't sort of like listen to the local weather forecast. Yeah, like Larry, at, uh, you know, live at five. Right, exactly. Oh, well, yeah, there's, there's several elements that are important. Yeah. Hey, well, this has been great. Uh, any a few last parting words before, uh, before we uh, conclude this podcast? I don't know. It's been great. The past three years have been uh, an incredible upward trajectory. I mean, yeah, I would yeah. say for sure, like, I've never felt like we made a bad decision. I never regretted, you know, this. I, before we bought it, I thought, oh, man, what happens if, like, we don't like the boat? Or, yeah, you know, yeah. It's been, even the bad times, you know, we're learning experiences. And no, it's been, it's been great. And it's just basically, you know, owning a boat, it forces you to go out and do stuff. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's one of the best things. Well, that's great. Hey, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, you guys were great. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, and it was nice catching up with you. Have a great day. Yeah. All right, see you again. Yep, bye-bye. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Simon and Sawyer. It was great to hear about their sailing journey. So listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode. We hope you found this episode interesting and thought-provoking. If you have any questions about what we've discussed, please get in touch with us. Our email is sailingtheeast.com at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, let us know, or better yet, tell a friend. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>